Welcome to Fans of the Forge. I'm Chris. To my left we have... It's Sean. And... Teresa. And our special guest, we have Theo Naz. Hi guys. Yeah. We just finished lunch, actually, with uh, <laughs> Theo, but after uh, we had done some forging with him, keep an eye out for that video, coming soon. Um, but we decided we want to sit down and do a little interview with you as well. We have a number of questions, hopefully... Some of the questions dating back to your earlier episodes won't be too obscure for you, but uh, you know, answer them as you see fit, as in-depth or not as in-depth as you want, whatever you want. Sure. I like yeah. ambiguity. That's, we're good with ambiguity. All right, that's the interview. Thank you. All right. <laughs> so, should I start us off here? We're going to hop all the way back to your first appearance on Fortune Fire. Sure, yeah. Season 3, episode 14, Nagamata. Mm-hmm. What were your first thoughts when you walked into the set, of the, the Forge set itself? Yeah, uh, I remember thinking that the set was a little smaller than I thought it would be. Uh, you know, because they used to film in Brooklyn, uh, a lot of the set, they have to just put the camera at the right angle to make it look like this enormous warehouse space. But it's, uh, it, it, it's a Brooklyn building. It is, it is small, it is cramped and hot. But they did a good job of making it safe and spaced out enough that you're not really putting yourself or others at risk. Um, but I just remember thinking, walking in and being like, oh, okay, all right. This actually feels a little bit more homely than I uh, thought it would. <laughs> cool. All right. Uh, did you do anything to prepare for that appearance on the show? Uh, in preparation for the episode, I just forged a lot of knives. Uh, you know, at that time, Fortune Fire had been out enough to know that they like to challenge you and mix things up with all sorts of random styles and techniques and materials. So I bought a bunch of random materials and tried a bunch of random styles. Uh, worked out pretty well. That's cool. Yeah, great. Um, your plan going in was to have the most fun. Is that your philosophy on life? I, I think I produce the, the best work when I'm enjoying it. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, there's, you know, knife making is a combination of a sport, a craft, and an art. So you have to be in the mode, in the mood to create art, to do it to your fullest potential. Just like you have to be up for filing for three hours to get that fit just perfect, or physically ready to forge for four hours to, you know, like, you need to be in the right mindset for all these elements. And if you're not, yeah, well, then you probably should take a break. Come back to it when you are. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. You don't want to just be pushing yourself to do something if you're not enjoying it. Yes. Yeah. So, your first challenge in the forge was that you guys had to pick up a box, mm-hmm. and there was different techniques that you had to then do based on what you picked. And you got the Hata technique. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Had you done any of the Hata technique prior to the episode? Uh... Well, let me tell you first, I chose the box next to Walter's because I knew that they would not put uh, the immensely tough ball bearing or, you know, canister Damascus Mm -hmm. next to something of nearly the same difficulty because it doesn't make for a good lineup. So I knew that the one next to it was going to have, it was going to be easier to some degree. I got lucky. I got arguably the easiest uh, challenge for that, that step of the show. Or the episode. Um, 
I mean, Hata technique is, is essentially just forge welding cleanly. Right. right. Uh, of course, Hata is the presentation of the homon in addition to the layering on the blade and the, the overall aesthetics of the blade itself. So you can't really like pin down this is what makes it a good Hata technique. That said, I probably should have done more layers because part of the Hata technique is showing off your layering. Now, the flip side of that, of course, is uh, if you forge weld well, there is no visible lines between your layering. By increasing the number of layers, the chances for impurities to work their way on into the steel and then make the layering evident, that would actually be detrimental to the blade. Oh. but part of showing off the technique. So it was, it was a tough choice. Do I do more layers or do I focus on the hamon? Uh, I ended up focusing on the hamon again because making more layers show up would have been detrimental to the blade. Right. A little repetitive methodology. Now with the, the hamon, the clay mm. was an issue, right? Was it because you put... Uh, see, they made it seem like it was. Oh, they... So traditionally, yes, you do not apply as much clay as I applied. <laughs> I applied a lot of clay. Yes. I, yeah. Uh, you're never too sure if it's going to stick. It stuck really well and layered really well, so I just kind of kept it. It worked just fine. Yeah. You, you can do too little clay. You can't really do too much clay. Although I'm sure there's quite a few people that would be upset with me saying that. <laughs> well, Sorry. the clay's there to you know do a certain job. It's yeah. To, you know, protect it from heat and heat treat. So. I would. It yeah. wants to insulate it. it, right. it we want it to contain its heat and right. protect it from being cooled. Right. Oh, okay. So it doesn't undergo this uh, transformation. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. There's, there's a whole, whole conversation right there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Fit and finish of the handles where you suffer the most mm -hmm. in your words. Is that still the case? Uh, I think I've brought myself up to par with fit and finish since that first episode. I mean, par is kind of a loose definition, but I think that I'm making my handles and fit and finish at an acceptable quality level for what I'm asking and for the eventuality of becoming a journeyman and, and then master there. Yeah. yeah. Going back to your Hada technique for a minute, can mm -hmm. you explain the difference between Hada and Damascus? Yes, uh, so Damascus is a generalized term for pattern welding. Uh, pattern welding is literally folding or doing something to the steel to develop a pattern in it. Uh, you don't necessarily need to have two alloys, but the most common way to pattern weld is to have two different alloys that you forge weld together and fold a bunch of times until you develop a pattern in the steel. The Hada technique on the, on the other side if you're using mono steel, like I was supplied, no other alloy involved, then I guess technically it's pattern welding if I had intentionally forged in some impurities, right? right yeah. To develop the pattern. Uh, the interesting thing is, of course, that uh, the, the pattern we did put into it through the Hamon would not be considered pattern welding, because you can do that to just a bar of steel right. without right. forging and folding it. I don't, I don't know if there is a yes or no on that. Those are just kind of the general terminology and how I would describe it, break it down. Uh, I would say no, it's not Damascus. Okay. Yeah. 
I think you guys left this question open for me because you kind of skipped back a little bit here. So, in that episode, they highlighted you making a joke. And then they, sh- they left the entire thing in <laughs> of you not hitting the punchline yeah. properly. Yeah, yeah, the, yeah. the blacksmith in the lingerie bar. Well, they, uh, <laughs> to be honest, what they did with it was funnier than the joke itself. So I'm happy that <laughs> yeah. they did that. Because oh, like, the joke itself is really not that funny. Most of the jokes are not funny. That's what's kind of funny about them is that they're not funny. <laughs> yes. I don't um, well, we were watching it again last night, and we were laughing very hard at that whole segment. But it was, yeah. it was, it was well done, I thought. But anyway, yeah. <laughs> I didn't feel like they were poking fun at me. I I did say all of them. So it's not like, yeah, yeah. It's not like you didn't say it. it was, I gave them that material. Yeah. Um, for the Naginata, the outer shell had been laminated. Um, do you have any? Did you have any other issues uh, making a weapon? Uh, well, so that. Uh, I bit off more than I could chew at the start of the Naginata and quickly realized that, uh, yes, okay. uh, it was not a delamination, although it might have become one later on if I had continued to forge it okay. and continued to try and forge weld those layers together, uh, but like at that stage I'd already realized I have enough material in mono steel to begin with. If this is already presenting a small problem, why let it become a bigger problem? Just nix the fancy bits and make it well and not worry about these flaws that might come back to bite me later on. Uh, you've seen that having to remake the blade on the second, you know, second to last day, it can end it for people. So yes, yeah. I, I just didn't want to hit that place where I was grinding and like suddenly realized, okay, there's a huge gap between my layers. This is garbage. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it was. It was not really a delamination so far as in realizing that it wasn't going to take to begin with. Right. Gotcha. And okay. just saying, you know what? It, ultimately, it was a uh, it was two hours lost. So it wasn't. Yeah. Even, it was a small fraction that day. That was the worst thing that happened on the shoot mm-hmm. on the Naginata. So they had to blow that a little out of proportion right. to get the drama that's necessary yeah. for good TV. Of course. Had you ever made any other weapons that had a long? I had not made po- I had not made any pole arms up to that point. That was the first pole arm I'd ever made, and in that space, it was uh, it was it was longer than the space was wide, so it was always at an angle in the shop. <laughs> a challenge. Here I have a little bit more. Yeah. Yes. So that was all we had for your first episode, mm-hmm. and then you went on for the champion of champions. Right. Um, so contestants had to make a competition chopper prior mm-hmm. to the show, and judges criticized the size of the handle. Yeah. that you had. Yeah, yeah I'm, a, I'm a small guy. <laughs> yeah. Is this the design you sell batches of, and if so, did you adjust the handle size? Oh, well, yeah, the, uh... Ugh. Yeah. This is the new handle pre-grinding, so it'll actually get bigger than that after grinding. Uh, you can see, forging to my hand, I need to then open it up a little bit. But it will fit most people's hands. I mean, yeah. you guys can see it's it's in your hand. Yeah, it's comfortable. Yeah. Yeah. It would be a little... <laughs> yeah. I just imagined you swinging that, and I had a very interesting... It's your turn to pick up the kids. <laughs> so, yeah. 
Uh, Neil Kamimura and the other contestants are well known in the bladesmithing community as you are. Was it intimidating competing with them? Absolutely, yeah. But, uh, I mean, again, if you approach it from the standpoint of uh, I'm here to have fun, right, and not I'm here to compete or, or win or lose, well, I think why would you be able to lose? But yeah, you get the idea. Uh, that's, that's what allowed me to approach it, like, from the perspective of, oh, I just got to make some new friends and, right. and forge alongside them, and, oh, it was cool, we, yeah, we had a little competition, but, you know. It's more of a cool experience than it is, yeah. to, you know, like, oh, I gotta really beat this guy, or, oh, I'm man, sure how that, can I win? As a lot of the guys you've interviewed have said, it, there's, there's a lot of com- camaraderie between yeah. all the folks that come on the show. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, you, you can't really be an asshole in this community. It just doesn't work. Yeah. Uh, everyone's too close knit, knows each other, or it gets around immediately. You know, not that that should be the reason that you're not nice, but you you get what you get. Yeah, just be nice. Just Everyone's be nice. Just yeah. a good person. Yeah. You never know when that person's going to help you pick up the power hammer mm-hmm. that's being sold at the shop next to them or whatever. You know, and oh, yeah, just just yeah, you never burn bridges. That's the big thing. So Ben Abbott. Mm-hmm. was asked to be a judge on the show after winning his Champion of Champions episode. Right, yeah. And I believe this was the first episode he was a judge on. When he mm-hmm. was yes, uh, yeah, Ben was, uh, he was a little nervous. He didn't have any reason to be, but it was like his, one of his first times being on that side of things. Yeah. You could definitely see it. He was, he, he wanted to make sure things were fair and that he wasn't playing favorites and that, uh, you know, everyone got the, the same level of attention, if that makes sense. So no favoritism. Yeah, of course. So that being said, if they called you up, would you be a judge on the show? And that you're one of the champion of champions as well, like Ben Abbott. That's a tough one. Uh, I think I would enjoy being a judge, but uh, to to be a judge in a show, I would I would have to ask permission from a couple of the Smiths that have been doing it decades longer than me. Like I'm, I'm friends with Jason now. I would want to get his input on it. Right? If he said, yeah, you're skilled, but you're not there yet, I would respect that, and I would, you know, I'd have to pass on it. Uh, although, that said, I, you know, he's so, so, such a supportive guy, it's hard to imagine. Right. <laughs> uh, but he's also honest, so it's that, you know, it's a bit of dichotomy there. Sure. Um, yeah. I don't know. You guys know something I don't? No, not okay. at all. Then, uh, <laughs> When it, when it, we'll cross that bridge when it, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Rarely do we know things that you guys don't. <laughs> yes, true. Um, were you surprised to see Ben Abbott as a judge as this was his first episode as a judge? Uh, I wasn't surprised to see Ben as a judge. He's a very skilled smith. Uh, it, it just makes sense. Mm-hmm. You know, especially with having one, two episodes that it just made logical sense. Uh, yeah. He gave... Great commentary, and so no, I wasn't surprised. So we've heard from other people we've interviewed that the judges, uh, not the judges so much, but people in behind the scenes, don't like it if you give uh, hints or advice to the people you're competing against. I know the judges always like to say, we love to see the camaraderie, we love to see the them talking, but we've heard the opposite side of things where they're saying stop talking go go back to your forge do this that and i bring it up because there was one section where you were giving neil some advice right yeah uh yeah i didn't get that impression at all 
Huh, okay. Yeah, this is news to me. Yeah. Uh, I mean, they encouraged us to converse with one another if we felt it was necessary. Mm -hmm. uh, and I definitely didn't get a stink eye or anything for talking to, to Neil during the forging. I don't know. I don't. Yeah, we've heard it. Either a producer would say it, or even Ben would. Really? Or not? I'm sorry, not Ben. Uh, Will. Yeah, Didn't cool. we hear like Will's like, hey, you know? Oh, I'm one of the show. Go back to your. Well, that's the thing with Will is you can't tell if he's yanking your chain, or being serious. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I said, I could see how maybe he was messing with someone. And they took it seriously. And they took it very seriously. Yeah, it could be. Maybe I don't know. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, we like to call it Doug Cams. This this episode has a good Theo Cam. What was going through your head when Neil was screaming at his quench tank? Oh yeah, I thought he had hurt himself. I, I was uh, genuinely concerned that he had burned himself or smashed a finger or something. Or yeah, he had been just quenching, so that's what I was. Right. He burned off some of his hair or something. <laughs> uh, and but then I immediately realized he was just getting very frustrated, which is understandable. Yeah. That'll happen. <laughs> yeah, it's. I mean, it, as a teacher, your instincts. You, you can't not try and like if someone's in help. But right. Someone needs help. Stop what you're doing and give them a hand. What's going on there? Yeah. Did you actually expect the judges to hold your blade for handle size? I did. I thought they would. <laughs> I don't know. It just felt like the right question at the time and. All right, so they wouldn't. That's fine. No big loss. You're making a weapon for someone else to use. Yeah. Why wouldn't you ask them if... Well, it was know, a good commentary that he gave me, but he didn't let me follow it up with anything, so... Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, not to spoil the episode, but you made it into the finals, as you know. You're a champion of champions here, and your final challenge was the Tai Chi sword. Mm -hmm. So... What did you think of the Tai Chi sword when you saw it? Had you ever made anything similar to that? Well, I, I did Wing Chun for a number of years. Um, so I was vaguely familiar with, well, I used the Tao and then the Jian or the Tai Chi sword as they call it. It's not, that's not the name. It's called a Jian. Okay. Right? It, it's like the Chinese version of an arming sword, right? Uh, it, it's not specific to Tai Chi. In, in, I believe historically it existed several hundred years before Tai Chi. That's a whole other thing. Yes. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, it's a fun sword. I, actually, I thought it was going to be too simple a challenge almost. It's very. It's a similar blade to what I'm used to producing. So that's why I did the integral element because I felt like all tubers aside, that it was almost too easy, if that makes sense. Like, it was something I'd done so many times before, I wanted to really add this extra flair to it that would make it an unnecessarily hard challenge, you know? Instead yeah. of just, an, oh, let me just pump out another one of these swords, let me add something to it that's going to make it, like, difficult, you know, right. legitimately difficult for me. And it, it was yeah. And I think it added something to the blade that really yeah, gave it some extra life. Mm -hmm. What did you spend your twenty grand on? Now you're sitting in it. <laughs> this this shop, where, nice I, shop. where I make knives and teach, and yeah, it, a lot goes into insurance. Yes, <laughs> of course. Yeah, uh, yeah, having students swinging hammers at Hot Steel in New York City. 
is expensive, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but uh, we make it work. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Cool. All right. Um, oh, yeah. Do you still forge ashes into people's blades? Uh, so I did forge ashes into blades for my family members using my grandparents' ashes. And I had done something similar for uh, the parents of a friend of mine who had passed away. Um, since then, I've found better ways of including that in the handle uh, by impregnating it in epoxy mm -hmm. with other things mixed in, things that matter to them, jewelry and such. Uh, I like that more than putting it in the blade right. because uh, I believe it's uh, calcium phosphate. Someone's going to correct me on that at some point, but let's say calcium phosphate sure. in from the bones after uh, being cremated uh, is uh, pretty bad for steel. It's a, it's a huge uh, issue if you have layers of steel with like a fine banding of it in between. So technically I made an inferior blade because of that. Uh, now that said, the memento is the most important part. But everything we make in this shop should be more than just serviceable. It should perform well. So since then I found that was Cool. Yeah. You recently visited the UK for a vacation. <laughs> Did you do any forging while you were there? No, I, I went to the UK to, to visit my wife's family and, and take it easy. It was, it was a vacation. Yeah. Good. Uh, so people continually ask me if I visited Alex Steele. Right. <laughs> and uh, that was when I found out he was in the UK. <laughs> I don't do much YouTube. Uh, so. Well, we'll have to send you the link so you can check this video out later <laughs> on. <laughs> um, how is Blade, the Blade show? Blade is good. Uh, yeah, it's a lot of people. I, I, it's funny saying this as someone who lives in New York City, but it was too many people to be around for me. Oh, wow. Like it was, it was overwhelming. You know, Fifty thousand people. You know, it's 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 a lot of people in in, in one space. It, it, there's just something about it that makes me somewhat uncomfortable. But what was great, of course, is seeing all of the guys from Fortune Fire, all these other like, the idols that I've been basing my work off of for years. Uh, like I got to see Master Smith Lin Ray again, and he's always been an inspiration for my work. Were you exhibiting? Uh, at, at Blade, I did share a table with uh, a lot of the other guys from Fortune Fire, which was pretty cool. You know, we got to see a very wide variety of work on one table. So, as part of my preparation for these interviews, I also go through your Instagram account and like see what you posted, see if there's anything particularly interesting that stands out separate from bladesmithing. Okay. Are you still playing Hearthstone? Oh yeah, I play Hearthstone pretty much <laughs> daily. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And I know we talked at lunchtime, Fallout 76 is coming soon. Oh, yeah. And yeah. when that comes out, I may have to send you a little message. Here's oh, my of course, username. Yeah, we'll play together. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. We don't have to mod the game any longer to play multiplayer. Yes, exactly. So it works out pretty well. That'd be cool. We'll get our hands on some nukes and blow some people up. Absolutely, <laughs> yeah. You've worked with Jason Knight in your shop before. Pretty um, cool, yeah. He's the creator of Be a Maker, Not a Taker movement. Do you have a personal philosophy for what you do? Uh, not to that extreme, right. if that makes sense. Uh, I, the way that the world is set up these days, not everyone can be a maker. 
there there has to be people buying your shit. Mm-hmm. Sorry, am I allowed to swear? Of course. Oh, okay. <laughs> Good. I, I like swearing. Uh, yeah, there's there's got to be people to buy your shit, no matter how tough it is to see people struggling in the food service industry or, or you know, working construction and they don't want to. It, we need people to do jobs that are tough and they don't necessarily want to do. Uh, I don't think you should look down on people who buy from the makers, who, who patronize us. Oh, no, that's not the right word. Who are our patrons. Right. Uh, yes. <laughs> oops. <laughs> um, because that, that, that's the foundation of I wouldn't be able to do what I do if it wasn't for those folks. Uh, I think ultimately it's hard to find a happy middle ground of, you know, like, if you do not enjoy making, right, then you can contribute to society in other ways. You can support the people that do enjoy making, right? Buy things that are handmade. If you, for, for whatever reason, people keep telling themselves, I can't do this. I can't work with my hands. I can't paint. I can't draw. I can't write. Um, and, and sure, maybe you're right. Maybe you are incapable of doing that. But you have to try first. And then you can go, okay. I like this guy's work, right? I'm going to support him, and I'm going to keep trying to find the thing that works for me, right? You can do both of those things, or you could just support the people that you like the work of. You don't only have to feel like you're not contributing to society if you're not making something yourself. That is a long, drawn-out way of saying you don't have to make to contribute to society. That makes sense. Yeah, it makes sense. You just need to find the right people to support. You know, instead of buying an IKEA knife, maybe support a custom maker. Mm-hmm. That's all I'm saying. You don't have to feel like you need to make something to be a productive member of society. Right. You can just do something and support the people around you and do something positive. Although, obviously, I encourage you to try the craft first. Yeah. How did you get into bladesmithing, and were you a blacksmith first? Uh, I got into knife making working at an art supply store in East Village. Uh, Basically, with my 50% discount, I was able to buy a stainless steel straight edge and files and hacksaw and kind of like turn it into a knife, sort of. (laughs) Um, And then, of course, I, I made this oversized, almost like a sword, machete sort of thing. And it just didn't perform right, didn't hold an edge, the handle was all janky. Uh, what's going on here? I look online, I find out that there's like a community and there's books and there's all these things I can do to improve on it. Uh, and that kind of got me started on my self-education. Uh, and then after college, I went to the UK and I studied under Master Smith uh, Owen Bush. He's very well known for his pattern welding. And that's what got me into making Damascus and folded steel and, and doing some of the more complex designs. Uh, when I returned back to the States, I continued with that and uh, kind of always was doing it in the background of my day job until Fortune Fire. I saved two other pictures from your Instagram account, specifically because there was no captions on them. <laughs> what am I looking at here? Uh, that is uh, the head of a pummel 
So it was a large fighting knife oh. based off of uh, a weapon from Monster Hunter. Oh, uh, so okay. the Kezu is a traditional Monster Hunter. It's a, a blind, vampiric-like, subterranean monster. Yeah. Yeah, so it, it has a great uh, weapon in the game, but it's like, you know, eight feet tall. <laughs> so I did a scaled down a fighting knife version of it. Okay. And I used 3D printing for it. Oh, you did for that one? Yeah. All right. Oh, cool. Yep. Do you have a favorite style and blade to make? Uh, so I'm at a weird point in my career where I should be starting to settle into a style and kind of like choosing the direction I'm going and I'm not. It's because I, I don't have a style. Like I, I have certain things that I'm sort of known for doing. Like I, if it's mono steel, it probably has a moan, you know, a, or my general handle shapes usually have a little bit of curvature to them. But yeah, I don't, I don't have a style, so yeah, I don't have to tell you. It's yeah. not like you know, it's some people I guess would maybe like. They're all about like a kukri, like yeah, I love making those. Yeah, or, th those are fun. Yeah. yeah, I don't want to only make them. Right. Yeah, I, like. I, I like the idea of being able, being able to see something on the show. I mean, like, that's fun. I think yeah. I'll make that. You know, and, and just yeah. do it in maybe a little bit of my style. Mm -hmm. You know, putting a flare on it, maybe a forged integral element or something. I guess, yeah, my assistant keeps telling me that integrals seem to be my style. I guess I can't disagree with that because he watches the work every day. So <laughs> he knows probably better than I do. Beyond taking an introductory class, as a teacher, what is the best beginner advice you would have? Or advice? Uh, you know, it's tough, but my advice to anyone that's starting is go slow. You know, both both in, you know, pacing yourself, making sure that you're safe, but also don't jump into a, an overly complex project. And you're not going to know what overly complex is, right? You, you, you probably want to read up a little bit to understand what most people do as their first projects, right? A sword is a bit much, right? That said, I do have students who come in and, and make a sword and it's kick-ass. But usually from then, they, they don't come back because that's the project, that's the thing they wanted to make. If you're interested in the educational aspect of it, what makes a knife a knife? What makes a sword a sword? Why is there this difference when we think of the two? You know, if you're looking to answer these questions, then yeah, you probably want to start with a knife and work your way up so that you can get the answers to them, you know, progressively, understand it in a deeper level. Um, otherwise, you're just going to focus too much on that end product and not what makes a sword a sword. You know, why is it bending and holding an edge or not? How many times do you need to make a particular style of blade before you are comfortable teaching somebody else to make one? Hmm. Um, once, usually. Uh, the reason I say that is because uh, I don't focus on teaching any particular one style. I don't, you know, I don't have a utility knife class. I don't have a buoy knife class. I have a small, medium, large, and sword class, right? So I have every week people coming in 
with some really strange blades from history, science fiction, anime, whatever they've pulled it from, they come in with this wild idea and maybe together we dial it back to something a little bit more reasonable, you know, maybe functional, you know, first and foremost. Um, and there will be times when it, it doesn't really exist. Like, there is no historical reference. So we're kind of just making it there the first time. Uh, in which case, it, it'd be my first time making that particular knife with them, and we're figuring it out together. But usually that's the really wacky, out-of-this-world stuff. For the most part, it's something I've really quite a few times before. Yeah. Uh, the reason I say all this is because I do encourage students to come to me with fucking crazy ideas yeah. to make it happen. Right. Let me talk into dialing it back a little bit, but let's still try and make it happen. Yeah, cool. That's cool. That's it. It's nice to hear that you're open to that. Whereas there, there may be other people out there that are like, this is what we're teaching this class, and you come and you, you learn how to make this particular knife, yeah. and you learn how to make it well, but it's focused. That's, one thing. That already exists. There are other guys doing that really well. I wanted to offer another option that accommodates the kind of wacky New York schedule, right? Mm -hmm. People who need to just disappear to pick up their kids or have to take a call for a meeting, they may not be able to spend the whole day with me. So they got to be able to drop their project and go off and do their whatever their life entails and come back and pick it up and not have missed anything. That's really important. It's why I only have four students at a time. So you get that attention that you need because your project is not at all like the person you're standing next to. Right. And the person next to you, or them, is just out of this world. I can't teach you both at the same time. You know, the, well, I take that back. There are definitely steps that overlap. But usually it's like, you're doing a recurve, you're doing a long curved sword. Mm -hmm. Hold on one second, let me show him this step and I'll come back to you because it's, if you watch him do his step, you're gonna be confused sort of thing. Right. Um, what size propane tank to use and how long does it last on your fridge? Yeah, so here in New York City we are very limited to what we can use. Um, I use a 43 pound tank and that's pretty much the limitation. Uh, and I'm, I'm not upgrading simply because eventually I'll be tapping into the natural gas system for the building. Oh. Which is kind of like the ideal way to work. Because yeah. then you're not limited to just what you have, it's an endless supply. Right, you're not worried about filling up or, you know, can I... It's a pain. I only have so it's many hours left and, yeah. Yeah, and I'm, I'm limited to pretty much their delivery guys. Mm -hmm. Which are nice people. But I'm not... The, you're not their only customer. I'm not their only customer. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm, I'm making pennies for them. You know, they got big industrial sites that they need to visit with, you know, 100 pound canisters and such. After a long day of forging and teaching, what do you like to do to relax on a one? Uh, well, I'm a big fan of anime, yeah, uh, who'd thunk, uh, video games, of course, mm -hmm. uh, just starting to get into 3D printing, which is, uh, at home, I've always done 3D printing, but now I have one at home. Oh, cool. And, uh, becoming a little bit of a house husband, it's nice, you know, I've never really cared so much about the apartment, and now all of a sudden it matters, so that's nice. Yeah, that's cool. <laughs> That sort of thing, as you get older, just starts to naturally ingrain itself in your head. Yeah, I'm fine. You've come to notice yeah. the same thing as we work on our house and do things. But, yeah. The messier the kids get, the more he needs to be cleaned. <laughs> yeah, I can understand that. Yeah. 
is there any question we should have asked that we didn't? Mm-hmm. What's your biggest mistake? Which, yeah. Oh, okay. Accident, yeah. mishap, broken blade, most regretted thing, I think is usually, that, that would be a good one. Because there's always something that's in the back of your mind. Right. That one project, the one, yeah. What's the saying? Uh, it, only serial killers and uh, detectives should have the one that got away. <laughs> so what is the one thing? <laughs> Uh, not starting earlier. Oh, I, I should have started earlier. As soon as I knew that this was something that you could do, I should have started. And not drag my feet on it, you know. There was some sort of, at the time, there wasn't a TV show. There wasn't such a huge online community. So, I did not know that I could actually maybe even make this a career. That wasn't even an option. It didn't, didn't even occur to me. And then, of course, after the classes and everything, I realized, oh my god. All this waste of time that I could be getting mm-hmm. my feet under me. Uh, thankfully, I got plenty of young, you know, tween and teen students that are making up that gap for me. Um, yeah, yeah, yep. Cool. That should be a lesson to us, Sean. We're <laughs> taking too long. We got to get our forge up and running so that we can start doing it. Uh, yeah, absolutely. All right. Let's um, put some propane. Yeah, let's get it going. All right. Surprise! What is he doing? I don't know what he's doing. To our lovely camera woman, oh. Charlotte. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> oh would my you, god! Would she marry me, please? Oh my god! Can you take the camera here? Yes! <laughs> yes! Congratulations. Oh my, <laughs> oh my god. All right, let's see that thing up to the camera. Oh my let's god. go. Oh my god, Come this on. What happened? <laughs> Very nice. <laughs> She's like, when are you going to get that ring? <laughs> I was like, I had to be sent out to size it. I'm going to cut it, bitch, and they don't get it back soon. I did say that, but I didn't know what it meant. <laughs> You're not cutting any bitches. Oh my god. Good. That's good. Wow. That's good. Congrats, guys. Oh, Congratulations. Oh my goodness. Now that just happened in your forge. That's really sweet. Thank you very much. That's my pleasure for having us today. We really appreciate it, Theo. Um, <laughs> thank you for sitting down and letting us interview you, as well as all the foraging. And um, this was a blast. We had a great day. Yeah. And Good. we'd love to hang with you again sometime soon. And um, as for this interview, that's it, guys. Thank you for watching. Remember to follow Theo on Instagram at Theo Rocknaz, I think. Yeah. yeah. You can search Theo Nas, yeah. it'll be there. And uh, follow him. 
and check out our YouTube channel if you're not already. You just happen to stumble upon this video. Subscribe and all that good stuff. And it helps build our channel so we can continue to do more videos like the one that we'll be putting out where we do some forging with Theo. That'll be out very soon. So that's it. Thanks everybody for watching.